you know, nobody was like, what, what will this, what impact will this have on her? Will she be okay? Will she always feel like she has to overachieve? You know, like, oh, okay, fine, skip your sick. I'm a super social person. All my closest friends will tell you, like, I'm super chatty and I love being around people. But what I wasn't very good at then was asking for help because I felt like that was an admission of failure. I know this now not to be true, but especially this is like pre-having a kid, pre-husband, pre-like being a grown-up, but you have put everything in that basket. You have nothing to fall back on and it's been your warmth and your joy and your happiness. And then someone, then you've got the world telling me that actually this might not work out for you. And maybe it's because you're not good enough. Hello, I'm Dr. Gemma Lee Roberts. Welcome to the Mindset Matters podcast. Before I introduce today's guest on Mindset Matters, I'd like you to pause for a second and think about something for me. When did you start to consider that your mindset could affect the outcomes in your life? Perhaps it was very recent, at a time where you've been reflecting on successes, challenges, or even failures. Or perhaps you're just starting to explore the potential of shifting your mindset to achieve what matters to you. For British actress, writer and mother, Kush Jumbo, it was when she was a young girl, through her innate curiosity to solve the many challenges around her, to be seen, to be heard and to fit in or be proud to stand apart, she became incredibly self-aware and determined to succeed no matter what it took especially if she could make you laugh. More on that later. To date, Kirsch has had an impressive award-winning TV and stage career, starring most recently in Netflix's Stay Close and BritBox UK's The Beast Must Die. But it was writing her award-winning one-woman show, Josephine and I, that kick-started her incredibly impressive career leading to her Broadway debut opposite Hugh Jackman in The River and propelling her into the role of Luca in The Good Wife, a role that was in fact created specifically for her, which then led to the spin-off The Good Fight. I loved everything about my conversation with Kush. We talked about coming from humble beginnings to achieving lifelong dreams and everything in between. In her truly authentic and honest style, Kush didn't shy away from discussing some of the challenges she's encountered in life. And my hope is that if any of her experiences resonates with you, you'll know that you're not alone and you have the power to make changes in your life. And if you enjoyed this conversation, check out the Mindset Matters Hub, which is full of resources, courses and masterclasses to help you on your mindset journey, many of which have been shaped by this exact conversation with Kush. Just to note before we jump into this conversation, Kush talks about some very sensitive topics such as suicide. So if this is something that you want more information on, check out Mental Health UK. So let's jump in and I hope you enjoy today's episode as much as I enjoyed chatting to Kush. Hi, Kirsch. Thank you for joining me today. How are you? Hi, Gemma. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited you're joining me. You've 
got such an interesting story. Some of the conversations we've had about how you've got there being so interesting. And, and my hope today is that we can kind of delve into some of that and pull out some of those key moments for you throughout your career and life, really. Well, thank you so much for asking me to chat to you about it. Yeah, we we have had some really cool conversations also about, I guess, how, um, especially about how you feel like maybe things that you've been through that negative, you feel are very negative at the time can impact you so positively in the future. Similarly to how people feel about failures also being like learning experiences and how that crosses over into your life and motherhood and career and and I just generally think you're a very awesome person so I just couldn't dare turn down the opportunity to talk so kind of I guess taking a step back like how I don't you know this is going to go now because we've just talked about being the good wife and the good fight as well um how did that all happen like tell me about like where it started like when you were really little where did you grow up how how did you get into acting or how do you even know you could act how did that all start um god i i haven't had this conversation that many times the one where you talk about your childhood and it's always actually um a bit like we were saying earlier about intros it's like i I actually forget how long i've been doing this for because to me it feels like yesterday quite a lot of the time when i look in the mirror i see the same eyes that i saw when i was like eight or nine years old i don't feel that different inside my head in terms of how my brain thinks and I think um since I was very young I have had a a mind that maybe thinks in an I don't know whether you'd call it like an old lady mind or a wise mind or a but I don't feel like my um my understanding of the world or my my um feelings about the world are that different so I'm I'm from South London I was born in in Southeast London I lived mainly in the borough of Lewisham and I'm from quite a big family. So I've one of um, six children. I was the second of six children. Um, my mum and dad were really young when I started having kids. And um, my dad's Nigerian. My mum's from the north of England. It's a very emotional pairing. Um, and we, there was lots and lots of kids around and lots and lots of noise. And my dad was a stay-at-home dad. So we had a pretty unconventional upbringing. He was Rastafarian. And um, my mum had come from a little town up north where there were no black people. So they were kind of doing the whole, like, we're going to get together and build a whole new world and have all these kids and perfect utopia. Of course, it doesn't work that way because six kids are really expensive and it means you have to move around social housing a lot. And um, so I would say that my, I think by the time I was 10, I'd, I'd been to eight schools, around eight primary schools. Um just by virtue of the fact that we were in rented accommodation, um, my dad stayed at home, my mum was a nurse, and we were always being moved to the next piece of social housing or because we wanted, we needed a bigger space for, for the kids, we had to move. So they were all in, in South East or South London, but I was used to packing up boxes, moving, starting again. And I actually for many years thought that most people move. I just saw people move every year um and I didn't realize when people told me in secondary school that that um they had lived in they were in the same house they'd been born in I thought that was like absolutely mind-blowing I just thought everybody moved um what I do remember in relation to my career now is that I don't remember ever wanting to do anything else apart from be a performer and I don't know where it comes from I I did go to dance school uh, dance school when I was three or four years old but it was literally like 
Saturday morning, three hours, pay you £2.50, do a bit of tap, do a bit of ballet, do a bit of jazz with my big sister, my, my oldest number one sister. Um, and I think it was just something for us to do. But I think in those early times, coming from a family where there were so many children, um, I became very attracted to the idea of, A, I seemed to be good at it. I seemed to be good at the dancing. I seemed to be able to follow the theory. And when I was good at it and when I followed it, I seemed to get a lot of praise for that. And I guess attention, um, positive attention. And I think that was very magnetic for me because I maybe felt like I needed to be, I wanted to be seen, you know, like I wanted to. And the more I could crack a joke, the more people would laugh. And then the better I danced, the more I'd be in the front of the line. And it was like a kind of like a, uh, it was kind of a process of of realising that I felt really, it felt really good to me to be up in front of people. I don't know whether some of that comes through just the genes that are in your body and you can't explain it. Neither of my parents are from a performing background and none of my other siblings have gone into this job. But I remember being like five or six years old and would watch a lot of um, Channel 4 used to show show matinee movies, like old musicals on Saturdays and Sundays. And there was always like two colours, one black and white, sometimes a European one. I would be mm-hmm. sat in front of the telly five or six years old all day watching old musicals. I knew all the actors' names, I knew all the routines, I knew all the songs. I was a very strange six-year-old. Like, I should have been outside, like, playing. But yeah, but you found your there thing. was something really... Yeah, like I just, I really got into the idea of the the behind the scenes of the theatre world, Broadway, all these these phraseologies that I didn't really even know what they were. I just knew like the Broadway was like a big deal and New York was a big thing. Hollywood was a big thing. But really in this, in this very much framed in this like MGM golden yeah. era of musicals way. You know what I mean? Not in like a modern way because in a modern way, I didn't see people like me on television or in movies or do big dance routines. There wasn't a Beyonce when I was a child. So I I think I was tapping into something that was more like the fairy tale-esque version of performing. And I was at a tap ballet in modern school. And if you went to a tap ballet in modern school in the 90s, they were all doing like step dancing around with top hats and sticks because that's what we did in the UK. I was there. We do, right? (laughs) We were all there. I've got our blue eyeshadow on. And um, so there was a connection there. And I suppose so at that stage, I just knew like, yeah, perform, performing. Um, I think it was when I I was a, quite an early reader. I remember being able to read myself in bed when I was five or six years old. And I wrote very fast and I wrote, I loved writing. I loved writing stories and poetry. And I've still got a lot of my diaries. I think my diaries start when they're like, when I'm six or seven. And I've got like, broad, like I draw Broadway and I've got like light bulbs around my name on Broadway. And I draw, li- I draw things like limousines and big houses and just a lot of like um, aspirational stuff, which I don't think was like, I know this is what I'm going to do. I think a lot of it was escapism because although my parents really did the very best they could the way they knew how, they were both quite damaged people as well. And I think that the house was really chaotic and there wasn't a lot of control. And I think I desperately wanted to imagine a world where I might be more in control of what was going on around me and less 
anxious and less afraid. Um, so I think that's what that was all about. Like, I'm going to have a life where, or I'm, I, I've watched Annie, I'm definitely an orphan and someone's going to come up and I can't possibly belong here. I'm sure my parents gave me up and they're going to come and get me. It was all really like dramatic and really like, you know, I'll find my place in the world. Um, but yeah, so I, so I guess I was um, a big thinker. You'd, I guess we'd say a child now that like, is anxious or I was definitely I was slept I slept walked a lot I slept talked a lot I wet the bed till my early teens kind of I was anxious child who was worried all the time and I think it went into stories and poetry and this kind of stuff so when I was in late primary school my teacher who was an amazing teacher in this South London school recommended to my parents that I don't do year six and I just go from year five to year seven because um, she felt I'd just done everything there was to do. I, I don't remember being very aware of this. I remember really enjoying school and doing work quickly and then just like not really having anything to do. But she was like my general maturity level. She didn't think I was going to get anything out of that extra year and that I should just m miss the sats and just go to secondary school. When I think back on it now, I'm like, that is absolutely bonkers. Like my parents were like, okay. And they just like let me go. <laughs> no, nobody was like, what? What will this? What impact will this have on her? Will she be okay? Will she always feel like she has to overachieve? You know, like, oh, okay, fine, skip year six. So I finished year five, packed the bags, went to year seven, went secondary school, and at that point, I, I became, yeah, like at that point, I became the youngest in my year because I shouldn't really be there, and I remained being that person the rest of my life because every year I went into the uni I went to I was always the youngest to be there but I never felt the youngest I always felt like one of the oldest so yeah that's one of the, me and Colette's running jokes as one of my oldest friends they'd always be like shut up you should be in the year below you know like it's all right for Kush she's not turning 40 yet you know I think that was around the time where I really started to develop a really big a bigger love of language and begin to look at these other routes you know I was kind of like doing some anything anything professional I could find to do I was doing it. if there was panto to audition for I was doing it if there was something in the paper something in the west end I was doing it there'd be auditions on blue peter I went in queued for like four hours to audition for a show in the west end and I think I've broken one of my legs where I tapped dance with one tap shoe and I still got the job and that was like boxing and alone in the west end I was doing it because I couldn't afford to go to a stage school of at that you know, around that time. So where I should, where, where it would have been good for me was somewhere that was like a secondary school alongside like performing, but um, they were very expensive. So I just used to do anything I could that was free until I got to go to the Brit school, which is where I met Colette, which is the only free performing arts school in the whole country. And um, when I went there, I met a whole range of other people that also couldn't afford to go to other places. So I found my kind of like tribe and it was there that I really realized that I didn't want to just be a dancer because you weren't allowed to be that opinionated. I often used to find myself in a dance class, the dance teacher trying to work out a routine or trying to fix something. And I'd be like, um, hi, if we all came around the right hand side first and then went around the left hand side, that would actually make the routine better. And she'd be like, again, Kush, don't need your help. You know what I mean? Like, but in an acting class and in a theatre class or when you're talking about script writing, all they're doing is saying, 
give us your content. What's your idea? What do you think about this? How are you processing this? So I discovered this whole um, space where people felt like my input was important and my ideas were important. And I started getting pulled much more down the route of not just acting, but like writing, directing, producing, being part of the, of the, the mechanic of theatre. And the dancing would still be useful, but it wasn't going to be like the thing anymore. I feel like I've made that whole bit of my childhood sound like it was like one, I was doing all of that, but I found everything at that time was very much anti somebody like me. And I felt like every process was really hard. Every audition process was harder. And then getting into something and then being the only black girl was hard and having people take the piss out of your hair was hard and not being able to afford to get to certain places or having to wear secondhand uniform at ballet school was hard. You know, like everything felt hard all the time and it, and you were always feeling like you had to kind of like suck it up all the time and get on with it because you didn't want to show weakness or that you were hurt by what people were saying about you or any of those here. And I'm people don't think I'm good enough. So I'll just work harder kind of thing. Yeah. What made you keep going? Because obviously, I think at that point, you've got a choice. You know, people would have a choice. If you look back at that moment in time, it's probably quite pivotal, I'd imagine. Because when things do feel hard, especially as a child, like we don't have all the abilities to process that or to understand what's going on. Like, what made you keep doing it and hold on to that? Not even necessarily belief, because you didn't know what it was going to become, but basically you could keep doing it rather than thinking, do you know what, I'm going to give up. I, don't, I just don't think this is going to be mm. my path or I'm just not really getting anywhere. Like, what kept you going with? I think it's two things, right? One is that, um, what, one I knew then and one I've realised now. So the one I knew then is that I knew, all I knew was when I was on a stage, I felt happier than I did anywhere else. I felt happier than I did at home. I felt happier than I did with my friends. I felt more alive and and full of like warmth when I was on a stage and the audience were dark than I felt anywhere else. And that even for it do that for enough hours, that's a very addictive feeling. You want to, you want it. It's like sugar. You want it all the time, and so you're chasing it, kind of no matter what. And I think the other thing that I think I'm now realised because I hadn't realised how that I was reading as much as I did and what the quality I was reading and the quant like I was reading like Bleak House and Anna Karenina and stuff when I was like eight or nine years old. And I think that if you're learning about the world through literature and you're a bit of a Matilda and you're reading everything you can, it's kind of like doing, doing years of traveling or having years of conversations, right? And all of the heroines in these books, all the heroes, Everyone in these books that succeeds, they don't give up. If you, mm -hmm. they face adversity, they're dragged down, they're kidnapped, they're, you know, married to the wrong people. But if you want happiness and you want romance and you want the best of life that life has to offer, you don't give up. You keep going. Which I know it sounds so romanticized, but that's kind of what I had ingested from what I was reading. And I don't think I was getting uh, that from some of the adults around me in my life. So I think I I just thought if it's in these books, then it has to be true, which 
It's probably responsible for all the really shit boyfriends I had too. Um, <laughs> it's okay. It's romantic. Um, but yes, but and that's why I, I massively advocate for even if your child isn't a reader to read to them as much as you can because it is to me as good as having a, an, another world experience and that led me to being able to work with scripts and write things and it helps you process so I think I think it was that but yeah I look back on it I'm like I, I don't know some in some of those situations how I did keep going because I had some real not you know it's the whole thing about reading and I've never actually thought about it until you've just said that and like obviously I, I've got little kids and it makes them read is quite a big thing you know like I love reading I've always been a reader but I really identified what you just said then about you can be in this whole other world because I was quite a big reader as a kid, but not so much kind of fiction. I used to read a lot of biographies and autobiographies and I mm. genuinely think that's why I'm a psychologist because right kind of from the get-go, I was, and I don't know, I can't remember any facts, you know, ask me when Keith Richards first picked up a guitar or when, I don't know, Edison, the year that he he you know, did the light bulb stuff. So I don't even know the exact things that they do. I've read the whole book and I'm in it when I'm reading it. And I look back and I'm like, why did I care? Why, why do I still read that many biographies? And I don't test myself with the facts. I'm not trying to remember the facts. All I'm trying to do is get a picture, like an overall picture of how people go from here, wherever here is to start with, to over here, the place where they do something of some kind. Because, you know, that's the stories we're reading about, aren't we? Where people have achieved something. And I genuinely think, I look back, and exactly, it kind of clicked when you just said that. That's how I became a psychologist, because I was interested in stories. I was interested in, like, exactly the same thing. Everyone you read about has come across some kind of adversity that everyone's had challenges to navigate, to overcome, to and you, that choice of, do I keep going, or do I stop? Or do, Sometimes, you know, we have to change course. That's a good thing as well, sometimes. Sometimes we have to give up and fail. That's also not necessarily a bad yeah. thing. Yeah, um, yeah. But it was learning those stories. I didn't even have those experiences. But I guess in the back, that must have planted a seed in the back of my mind that, well, hang on a sec. Because like, I don't know anyone that's done what I'm doing with my career, for example. I don't, you know, I'm yeah. not, it's definitely not the same story as your story, for sure. But I, like, I, I don't even really know what my job is. I don't even really know what I'm crazy. Maybe the last time we spoke, you were like, I'd just finished the doctor. You're like, what next? And I was like, I don't know, actually. <laughs> but I think the point is... That seed is planted in my head that whatever that thing is that you want to go and do, whatever you decide to do, like you can just do it. You can figure out a way yeah. of navigating. Maybe stuff, maybe that's maybe that's what it is. There's a word um that somebody once said, but I've actually got it in in neon in my office downstairs, but where everything strobes. But there's a word that someone once applied to me that was that's energia, which is the um the actuality of your potential. So and that some people have it inside of them and some people, you know, kind of don't. Like they have potential, but they don't know how to actualize it. And some people want to actualize things, but they don't have any potential. And it's like something inside of you that knows that it has the potential to actualize something. It's an energy. And and if you can kind of get in front of it at the right point, if everything hits each other at the right point, then something happens. And I think if you read enough books, then if you think about the math, like uh, I, a lot of the time before I went to brick school of an afternoon on a Saturday, I would finish my Saturday job. I would go to Bromley and I would go to Waterstones and I would bury myself in the musical section of Waterstones. And I'd be looking at really expensive books about Gene Kelly or Bette Davis or Audrey Hepburn. And I'd be looking at pictures of their houses and the cars and 
the lice and reading about crappy things that happened to them, you know, like, but the end result was always positive. So going, keep pushing, you will get there. And maybe these bad things that happen and the feelings that you have and you being upset is um, just part of your, your path, you know, your journey along the way. That's what I believed at that time. Um, yeah, it's quite romantic, really, isn't it? It's quite a kind of like, yeah. But I think, especially if you're a kid that, you know, I was from, you know, I was economically in a lower demographic. We didn't travel. I didn't fly on a plane till I was 17. You know, like we didn't have spare cash. Your your access to culture, the world, uh you do need, you need that. That's why I think reading is so important, especially if you don't have access to, you know, my son gets to, has been to so many different countries, not even five, you know, just turn five. I didn't have that. So, or even, or even the ability to have different adults coming in and out of your house with different lives and different inputs. And, you know, so I think um, it's amazing, really. A, a few, a few secondhand books can be one of the best things a person can ever have, I think. And and a, and a joy of um, a joy of reading, or being able to read by yourself, or being able to go into your mind is a really powerful tool, I think. And I feel like that's something like whenever I talk to you, I I marvel at how your mind works. And I remember we were talking about I was like, how do you write what you write, and how do you how do you do the work that you do like how do you take those characters on board when you're acting or how do you come up with the ideas and I you've definitely got a way that you process information with a you know it's not just processing it's the creative part of processing and putting and, and create and making that something amazing which I guess must be a bit of a talent or, or a bit of a natural skill or is that something you kind of learned to do over the years Oh, I, I mean, I, I, these questions are hard for actors, aren't they? Because we all want to be like, I have a natural ability to do the blah, blah, blah. Um, I, what I will say is I can go and watch young performers and I think there is a difference between a performer who is technically perfect and a performer who is making me watch them. And I can't maybe put into words what that is. It happens all the time when you go, you might go to a West End show or you might watch a movie and movies and TV are slightly different because the camera tells you who to look at when. When you go to the theatre, you have the option of who to look at. And sometimes you don't know why. This actor's doing a perfectly pitch perfect performance and you're just not interested and you just don't care. And someone else can be doing something that is making you cry or laugh, or, or scared, or like invest in the character. And it's difficult to put a finger on what that is, but it's something to do with how the actor makes themselves a vessel for the for the content, as opposed to the content. Like you're not, you're not the content. You are never the the thing. The play is the thing, as Shakespeare said. So you're you you make yourself the best kind of um filter that you can make. And then you let this stuff go through you and what comes out the other end is for the audience. If it's too stuck to you, it's really about you. And that's not actually investable, I don't think. And that's the bit that I don't know how I know how to do that. 
I've learned a lot of technical things and I have a process now, but some of these things, I don't know how, I don't know how I know. It's really weird. <laughs> I don't know. But it's just, you know, we've all got skills. We've all got strengths. It is something about communication as well. It doesn't even have to be necessarily verbal communication because obviously a lot of acting isn't verbal communication anyway, I'm sure. Even though when I think about it, I think of the lines and I think, oh my goodness, like I can't remember. Like I didn't have a list of questions to ask you because I can't remember a list of questions, let alone like a, a page of lines. But actually, that's not what it is. It's, it's communicating something else. It's communicating a feeling and a, a, a message that you can't necessarily pinpoint even where that message comes from, which I think is magical. Yeah. It's a, it's a train of thought mainly. It's why Shakespeare is, I think we're all taught in a way that Shakespeare is very tricky, but actually Shakespeare is one of the easiest um, texts to learn because he writes in thought and he writes in verse. So it not only has a rhythm, but it has an order, like the alphabet. That's why we all learn the alphabet really easily. It has a rhythm and a song that goes with it and it also makes sense, like it goes in a, in a sensical way. It's why some modern scripts are sometimes really hard to learn because they look very good on the page, but they actually don't follow a thought process. That human probably wouldn't reply to that human that way. That might not be where your mind would go. So it makes it quite difficult. Because then you're just kind of learning lines. It's like trying to find what the natural progression of the of the conversation would, would be. That's why the, the most amazing playwright, uh, script, script writers and and playwrights, they really understand humans. They can really, a bit like you, like they can really um, get inside of the heads of not just one person, but they've got to get inside the heads of many different people and have them all talking to each other, um, which I think is really interesting. And those scripts are really easy to learn. God, I wish I'd had you teach me Shakespeare. I, I, I did English literature at A-level. Did not get on with Shakespeare at all. But I, like, I, I wish I could go back in time and kind of do it all again. I guess there's still time. Like I need to, and how, imagine if you go back in time, like 20 years to tell Kush, like 20 years ago or 30 years ago, what do you think she would say if if you told her that, that story? Like it's so out in eight minutes. Oh, okay. So this is an interesting question because if you ask me that, I'm 38 this year. So if you ask me that 30 years ago, that Kush would say, of course I have. But if you asked me 15 years ago, that Kush wouldn't believe you. Because I feel like the period post-drama school, like early 20s, I didn't have a fast trajectory into the business. And that was, for me, I'm sure there'll be other hard parts, but career-wise and mental health-wise, that was the worst period of questioning whether the eight-year-old me had been completely realistic about my talent and what I wanted to do with my life and whether the whole thing had been a bit of a fallacy and a trick of the mind. And if that, that was true, what was the point in being here? Cause that's honestly the only, I know this now not to be true, but especially this is like pre having a kid, pre husband, pre like being a grown up. but you have put everything in that basket. You have nothing to fall back on and it's been your warmth and your joy and your happiness. And then someone, then you've got the world telling you that actually this might not work out for you. And maybe it's because you're not good enough. So you feel like you've been tricked. Oh my gosh. Um, so I think that Kush would have a hard time believing that we have an OBE from the Queen and 
you know, we're happily married with a kid and that we've traveled the world and that we've worked in the States and we're producing things like that Kush would be like, mm, don't know about that. That is so interesting because the little Kush, the eight-year-old, knows somewhere inside, well, maybe not even necessarily knows, but doesn't even question whether yeah. this could be your life or whether you could do this forever. Well, you know, you might not have been thinking, oh, is it going to be a job? Am I going to make money from it? It's it probably, I could do this forever and this brings me joy. Whereas, yeah, I wouldn't have, yeah, I wouldn't have cared. As long as I could survive, I wouldn't have cared. I just wanted to do it every day, all day. That was it. And, but there's obviously been a point in time where you start to question that. And I guess that's the outside world giving you signals that actually this is going to be hard or things aren't kind of happening at the speed you want them to happen or you're not getting it out there, but you're not getting feedback. Yeah. And I think that probably happens. And to a lot of, especially women, like in your, in your early twenties, you're finally kind of, most of us are finally released into the wild, right? We're like finally ejected from whatever kind of schooling we've done or not schooling, if we're working, if we finally got a boyfriend, we're, we're kind of like, okay, off you go women, be women. And you kind of go off into the world. And of course it's confusing because most of your experience has not been as a woman. It's been as a child. You thought you were a woman when you were 15 and snogging your boyfriend on a bench, but actually you were still a child and yeah. you probably were still a child at 18 or 19, even though we were getting drunk in Blue Orchid in Croydon. Like you're actually still a child and you haven't really um, stepped into that big pond yet. And so I, I think with probably with most um, situations, it's troublesome, but with, with, the, with the entertainment industry... <laughs> It's particularly confusing because we're talking about a business where art meets commerce. Those two things are total opposite ends of the spectrum. They shouldn't even be together, but they are. They are, in fact, one of the biggest businesses on the, on the planet, right? And if you want to make a living from doing the art, you have to interact with the commerce. But when those two things meet, what's in the middle is a whole bunch of shit about what the world thinks you're worthy of what they think you're good enough to do as opposed to that childish version which actually is the truth which is that if you want to do something you should absolutely be allowed to do it um and in another in another industry um if you pass this exam and ticked that box and did that and did that and did that and did that you could be a lawyer right as long as you do this and do this go to that law firm do that you'll be a lawyer but in the entertainment industry, you could tick every box and get the highest exam and be the best in the class and work your ass off and eat no food and shave every hair off your body. And you still might not get the job. And there's no logical explanation for that other than they didn't choose you. So your whole existence becomes based upon, instead of it being about how you feel about yourself, it becomes about how they, people that you don't even know, people who will never know more about you than just a picture on their desk and the size of your waist, they are deciding whether you are worthy. And if that knock happens to you enough times, it can be really destructive because you lose the sense of you're A, completely out of control, which wasn't good for me because I was back being a kid again. It's really chaotic because it's it's up, it's down, it's up, it's down. And um, you have very low self-esteem. 
because people are saying, well, you're not pretty enough, and you're not white enough, you're not talented enough, you didn't do it right. Sometimes they don't even give you feedback. It's just a no. So it's just like you hear people say phrases like, to be an actor, you've got to really be able to accept rejection. To be an actor, you've got to really meet the right person at the right place at the right time. And all of this stuff that people who are not actors say, right? It's not who, it's not what you know, it's who you know and all of this shit, right? When actually that's all crap. Like you're still a human being with feelings. You're still somebody who's giving a lot of themselves and putting themselves on the line all the time. And so it wouldn't be it wouldn't be normal for anybody to receive that amount of personal rejection over and over again in their early 20s like that wouldn't be normal for anybody to have that happened to somebody else in another industry or in a relationship if you had intense relationships and kept being dumped over and over again somebody would say maybe you should see a counselor maybe this isn't very good for your self-esteem do you know what i mean yeah. but like for some reason because it was an industry that's been there a long time and it is changing but this this idea that these young actors may need any kind of um support with that or help with that or even a pathway of like here's how you deal with this that wasn't really thought of and of course you as a performer it's stiff up a lip it's be stoic it's if you want to just like we said in the biographies right you want to make it in this business you better get tough it's that and anything other than that is failure and if you fail then there's nothing else so this is your option and so you it just it's a pressure cooker that's going to blow you know it's not um, I think also that the thing about talking to 30 year old, looking at, you know, talking to 30 years ago and then talking to 15 years ago is that, um, what I have had to learn is that what's ended up healing me a lot has been rediscovering the feelings of the eight year old me. It's like somewhere along the line, I lost her and was dealing with this, this person in the middle. And what's been really healing is going back to those original primary color emotions that the eight-year-old had. The eight-year-old didn't go, but what if the producer in blah, blah, blah doesn't? The eight-year-old was just like, I love doing this and fuck you if you don't like me. You know what I mean? And I had to pull back some of that again. And then I felt more in control of my life. I kind of, you lose, I think you lose, you can lose it. Um, That's the way. such a lovely description, like primary colour emotions. That is a beautiful description. And because it's not that life, well, life was simpler when we were younger, but I feel like, you know, we haven't necessarily got as much guilt, for example, or it's not wrapped up in all of these other expectations or, and you know, when we're that age, we're just thinking about what makes us happy or not happy. You know, what makes it, you know, you can be angry, you can be frustrated, you can be joyful you can be it's it's there's less ex and you just and you just did it like if you went to the park and there was a big rock to jump off you'd all go up on that rock and then some people would get to the top of the rock and they jump straight away other people get to the top of the rock and they go oh do you know what it's too high for me and they get down you wouldn't get to the top of the rock and then text your friend and ask them about the rock and then go online and double check what kind of rock is it have i done my research about the rock am i wearing the right thing to jump off the rock and all the other kids behind you are going, just jump off the fucking rock. And you're like, well, hold on. Let me just have a, th- I'm going to wait to the side of the rock. And then I'll have a, th- maybe tomorrow when I, you know, if that's the adult brain, yeah. you know what I mean? Like we started yeah. trusting ourselves. Yeah. We started trusting what the adults world was telling us to do. And then we lost all of our like instinctual 
Yeah. So, would you like to be my boyfriend? Oh, you're an asshole. I'm not going to date you. Like, we, we lost all of that. And we went into life. But I want to be liked. And he's good looking. And my friends like him. And maybe I'll give him a chance. And I'm sure he loves me when he calls me a fat bitch. You know, and, <laughs> like, you went into all of this, all of this complicated adult crap. And it's just like, get rid of it. And how did you, so when you were going through that time when like the world started questioning you and that's the, you know, the perfect pressure cooker for damaging your self-esteem and your view of yourself in the world, how did you come out of that? And did you come out of it unscathed or have you always carried a piece of that with you? And how did you come out of that like really intense period? I would say that I have felt more distance from it in the last five years since my son was born, although I dealt with some kind of some kind of post postnatal stuff with him working a lot. But in that period, I was working so many part-time jobs to pay the bills that I eventually had to move home. There wasn't any space for me at home, so I didn't feel like I should be there. Every audition was was for crap and it and it I wasn't getting it anyway. And I just felt like I started to withdraw more and more and more from the world which is not me at all I'm a super social person all my closest friends will tell you like I'm super chatty and I love being around people but what I wasn't very good at then was asking for help because I felt like that was an admission of failure and I know that it's very lots of people have been through the same thing like I grew up in a family where you just didn't want to fail and let everybody down And this was the only thing that I felt like I was good at. And I felt like it was the only thing that I was identified by, which wasn't true at all, but that's where I was stuck. Like I'm Kush the actress. So I'm not Kush the actress. Who the hell am I? I'm not worth anything. Um, I'd come out of a bad relationship that didn't help. We'd been living together. It broke up. It felt like the whole rub of the world but pulled out from underneath me. So it was all, it was kind of like a perfect storm. I didn't talk to anybody about how I was feeling. And yeah, cut a long story short, I had a lot of uh, suicide ideation, I suppose, and lots of thinking about planning things, but worrying about who would find me. And one particular day, like getting lots of pills out and thinking about like looking up like how many I should take. And I think I remember my own mind being like, you have to go to the doctor. <laughs> like you, but this tiny, small, like Jiminy Cricket type conscious part of my mind was like, look at what we're doing. It might be time to just walk down to the GP. And I just took myself out of the house and I walked down the road and I walked in there and I said, hello, I want to kill myself. Can somebody help me? Um, and they give you all their forms and blah, blah, blah. Now, I was really lucky because at that time they managed to get me counseling quite quickly I mean, I'm sure I was all, probably a worrying case as well, but um, you know, I had to I had to go back and and um, tell my parents, tell my siblings, tell my friends, and that was really hard because I had a wall up about being vulnerable about this stuff. So yeah, so I I had quite a quite a few weeks of counselling and then a break and then more. It was talk therapy and I had a little bit of CBT. And I was advised to get a dog because I was telling you my little dog Henry, who's still alive and he's sleeping up there. He's fifteen now. Um, but you know, a lot of that that kind of counselling is for the acute moment. Like you're in that acute moment of of um, wanting to harm yourself and feeling completely hopeless. 
And it's not yet dealing with all the causes of that. What it's doing is getting you back to a place of being able to healthily put one foot in front of the other. And one of the things that I'd stopped doing when I started feeling low was I'd stopped writing. I used to, I was writing musicals and I was writing plays and I'd already like done some bits and pieces of writing on the side for different theatres and stuff and I'd completely stopped because I was just, my mind couldn't focus. Um, and I'd wanted to write this play about Josephine Baker for years as one of my like obsessive musical theatre old world people. And I decided to start writing it. And when, when I sat down and started writing it, it just kind of like all came out of me. And I wrote a play about a girl who was an actress who was trying to make it in London and couldn't, nothing was going her way. And she just broke up with a boyfriend and she hated her life. And all she wanted was to be a performer and why couldn't it happen alongside Josephine Baker's whole life story and how the two were kind of running in parallel. I don't know where even the idea came from. It just like, no, um, came out of me. And I also made a decision at that point that maybe the acting industry wasn't that healthy for me and that I should do something else. And that instead of thinking, what else can I do? That it's hopeless. If I can't act, I'll die. Instead of thinking that way, that I should think back about all the things I've done, which I've enjoyed. And like, I've taught children dance. I've been a TA, like I've worked with kids a lot. And I've got my mind into more of a like, okay, I went to drama school. I got a first class honors acting degree. I could go and do my NQ, you know, like I could go train as a teacher. And I, maybe that would be healthier for me than to sit around bemoaning the fact that I never got onto Holby City. Do you know what I mean? Like I'm downplaying it, but like I was trying to kind of, so, I applied to do the primary school course at Greenwich University and I got onto the course and I was supposed to start in September and I'd written this show about Josephine Baker and I said, I said, I'm going to put it on in a pub theatre, which is where I could afford to do it in Camden. It seated like 12 people. It's called the Etc. Theatre above the Oxford Arms. And I did it because I wanted to finish this part of my life on a high note. I thought if I could get back on stage and do something that meant something, then when I talked about this with my kids in the future, it wouldn't all be like, I could have been a contender, but they wouldn't let me. You know, like I could be like, look, I tried my best. It didn't work out for me, but some somewhere along the line, I made this kind of thing. And I went and did the Josephine show and it just, people started tweeting about it and then producers got involved and then I moved agents and then I suddenly I was the Donmar and then I was in New York and then and it all just like, I didn't go and do the teaching course, <laughs> basically. It didn't happen, but it's like, I believe I only could have written that play in the headspace that I was in. So whichever way I look at it, I had to hit the bottom like that mm -hmm. to be able to rebuild myself. And it still took a really long time because although I started to do better in my career, I began to realize that you keep telling yourself, when I get this, I'll be happy. When I get that, I'll be happy, but actually, that's not the bit that needs fixing. But you, you're going to have these repeat problems if you don't deal with the underlying. But yes, that was a massive turning point for me. So weirdly, I kind of wrote my way out of it. Yeah, which the story blows me away. I mean, I wish I'd seen Josephine. I really do. Like, I'm so gutted that I, like, I totally missed that. But um, I'm sure there's lots more exciting stuff to come as well, but it's just such a moment in time for you. Like you said, you use, you wrote your way out of it. Like you used your skill, but not just your skill, like the thing that actually did bring you joy, the thing that did make you happy. And you used that to, to, 
to break through that breakdown moment and, and take those next steps. So it kind of, and I know everyone's story is going to be different. We're ne- none of us are going to have the same moments in life as someone else. But I, I really hope, you know, anyone that finds themselves in a in a place where they feel like they're at rock bottom, I hope stories like that illustrate that we don't have to say that and you can either change that situation or you could even use that situation to kind of propel you forward or take the next step as well. It doesn't have to be, you know, I always, when I think about failure, for example, it doesn't, a failure is not really a failure unless you don't, unless you do nothing with it. I always think to myself when I'm in a moment where I'm like, I could just give this all up now, like this is not working. This is, I'm at a roadblock. I can't push through it. I can't figure this out. And that still happens to me quite regularly because I'm, there's always something new that I'm, I'm I'm trying to do or somewhere I'm trying to kind of get to next. I always think to myself, imagine you were writing a book and this is your last chapter. Do you really want to end on this? Do you want this <laughs> to be your last chapter? Or do you want to like take it, like create a whole new chapter or do the next thing? And that's what kind of sticks in my head. I hope that's what people listening get from that as well. Like it doesn't have to be your final chapter you can keep writing, like for you quite literally, I'm not writing literally, like I think about it in my head like that, like you can keep moving forward yeah. and doing the next thing. Yeah, and that it's, I think like I had to learn that it's, if I had said to myself sooner, it's okay to not be okay sometimes. You're, you're feeling disappointed. Oh, that's really shit that's happened to you. Like if I had, if I had had, um, if I had had the knowledge to know that, just talking about how I was feeling a little bit to people would have taken the pressure out of the pressure cooker. I might not have got to that point, but you can, I think you can definitely be at such a low point. And if you can, I just identify that that's where you are and that you will come back up. That's just where you are right now. Then it becomes a bit of a muscle, doesn't it? Because then, you know, I've never been in that place again, but I come and go with, you know, my feelings about myself but I try to remind myself that this is where I am now but I've also been other places that are a lot better and they will come again it's a cycle like it's very comforting to know that you just have to kind of it's a bear hunt someone said to me recently about grief right can't go over it can't go under it you've got to go through it got to go through it and then you'll get on to the next bit but it's okay not to be like I can't you know this is happening I can't push through it and I'm going to pretend on the outside that I'm absolutely fine. That's like the worst thing you can do. I don't think enough actors talk about the imperfections of themselves within this business because we are all sold to you as being perfect people in every way. Face, body, mind, family, Instagram perfect people, right? And the truth is that none of us, none of us are. And nothing's ever how it looks or seems. And no amount of money will make you happy, you know, or being thin or anything. But um, I think that it would be better if more of us just said we weren't okay sometimes. It just, it's just better. It's just a nicer, you know, because we're not. No one's okay all the time. And even like, you know, moments of time. I go from one hour to the next. I could be on cloud nine and then I'm like, oh God, I feel so overwhelmed. Yeah. And it's like, like that's part of life like we're supposed to have those emotions we're supposed to that that is part of our experience of the world and I think like you say we just don't I think particularly 
in the acting world as well. Like we're not supposed to, like, I know I'm not in that world. We're not supposed to see those things. We're not supposed to get an insight into that. And also, in some respects, you're not even really supposed to be real people. You're supposed to be someone that's like completely unobtainable, and you can't even imagine what life is like for people who are acting, and that's their job. Yeah. And I, and I get it because that's part of the business, right? It's part of the sales pitch. It's about, it's a bit like the health industry, like the health food industry, yeah. right? It's like, it's like we, we want everyone to be as healthy as possible and want to eat these foods and do this exercise so we can all live our best life being as healthy as possible. But also we really need you to stay fat and unhealthy so that we can keep selling you these things, right? So it's like a little bit of a, like a crappy cycle. <laughs> so, you know, in the entertainment industry, the, the business part of it is very much kind of, we need to stay unattainable away from you so that you will aspire to like us and want us and, and want to be like us. But the, I think one of the best things to come out of the internet, there's lots of bad things, one of the best things to come out of it has been that all of those curtains have really been taken down a lot more in terms of, you know, people are interacting direct with people on social media and you see a lot more of what the truth is and what the truth isn't. So you have a lot more options and you can choose. And that's why I think we see so many people um, that have become hugely famous for, I'm not sure what they've become famous for and good for them. Because basically what we're seeing is like, you can aspire to be anybody. The person who lives down the street, if their pictures are really good, do you know what I mean? Like it's yeah. the mind. But yeah, so I, I, in that way, I feel like I'm in a, I'm still in, I'm still in a learning process of my own habits and the, the voice, the voice is in my head. I don't mean that, that in a mad way, but um, I very much am very comfortable with my little push now. But I think a lot of us spend a lot of time trying to get rid of them or ask them to go away or yelling at them and being mean to them because they're embarrassing us. Or um, by that, I mean like the little person that's inside of you that isn't healed from whatever. Um, when actually... They have a lot to give you and they want to be cared for and looked after because they're you, like you're your own worst kind of critic. And I think having my son has really helped with that because I'm your, you know, you get this like reflection of like, makes you think about how you grew up, what kind of parent you want to be and a whole other bunch of things to feel crap about. You, you don't. <laughs> a whole what else am I not doing like, right? Yeah. Hundred percent. I mean, the transition into parenthood for me has been unbelievable. Like, I I don't think I could even I can't even articulate it because because you're living it day to day as well. But I don't think I can even articulate yet the change that it's had over me and how I feel about things and the pressure. Like, I just was not expecting because I you know I I feel like I I live a lot of pressure with my work life, but that's nothing compared to. Remember how I feel being a parent. It's a whole. And how have, you, how have you found that kind of transition to not just focusing on your career? And, you, and, I, and I know, like, obviously, you've got your lovely husband as well. So it's not like it was just you, but like, so looking at being responsible for a whole other little human whilst you're serving. Yeah. Because you are your business as well, like running your business yeah. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. being creative and parenting. How, how have you merged all that together? Um, it's, I feel like I'm still, I'm still working it out, but I, I feel that that was the real, that, that was the biggest shift in me deciding to relook at how I process things because I think I had a really rough start 
with my son. I was very lucky in that I had a very healthy birth and I had a um, you know really healthy pregnancy, but being pregnant for me just happened to coincide with probably the best, biggest explosion of my career in in terms of being in America and being on the good fight. And it, it was a, a good timing to have a baby because we had specific months we filmed and specific months we didn't film, but I hadn't accounted for when you're playing such a big part in a show and you're doing, you know, we used to do minimum 14 hours a day. So you go, okay, I've got these months off and these months on, but you don't account for kind of, well, you've got to have the baby and then you've got to get back into shape to get back into costumes, to go back into set. You'd be breastfeeding through the night, but you're working 14 hours. Then when do you sleep? You've got to stop breastfeeding at some point, otherwise you're not going to lose the weight. And there were a lot of days when I didn't see him awake. The first year or so, I have very few memories of being with him awake. I have pictures and videos, which is really helpful. Um, but I, and I hadn't accounted for, yeah, but you're right. I was lucky. My husband, you know, was there and, and we were lucky enough to have some additional help. But that kind of wasn't what I wanted. Like I wanted my baby. Yeah. I didn't realize I was going to have those feelings of like, like with body aching, missing the baby. And then a whole bunch of horrific guilt about where I should be. But the fact that I couldn't be there because I spent my whole life working towards this job. And the thing with something like an American TV show or Broadway or any of these things is until you're an established person, these are not opportunities you can turn down. It's not as easy as going, well, I'll just choose, I just choose motherhood, you know, like, and I have always worked my whole life. And so these opportunities happen to just coincide with this big change. Um, and so I think I was really depressed for the first couple of years. And I didn't feel like I had the bond with him that I should have, even though I really wanted it, because I was putting so much guilt on myself about the time that I wasn't there. And then you're not sleeping very well and you're overtired and you're shooting too many hours and you're still not telling anybody how you're feeling. So, you know, it was a, a similar spiral. But at the same time, because you now have this little person who's such a joy and who forces you to look at these things, it makes you even more want to, like, make better decisions about stuff. Like, you have a kind of fearlessness, right, about life. It's weird how when you have a baby, things like, toxic friends don't become as like that whole thing about I don't know whether to not be friends with them anymore because like they're a really good friend but like they're really mean that stuff kind of goes out of the window you just like look dude are you my friend or are you not my friend if you're not my friend get out of my life done I don't have the time baby's not sleeping you know what I mean and it makes you make much um clearer cleaner primary color decisions because your time is so limited and your emotional capacity is so stretched. So that made me go, right, that's it. I'm digging in deep. I'm going to do the work on myself. I want to learn why it is that I go into these like patterns and what I need to do to get better. And I'm still kind of in that learning process, but it is getting better and it is a muscle and you have to kind of, but then find this balance between, well, I love my job. I love my career. So Yes, I'm going to need childcare. Yes, I'm going to need my husband to support me. My job is super important and I want my son to understand that 
that's a big part of me and who I am, who mum is, that mum is just not mum, who just revolves around him all the time. But then I need to make peace with myself about the time that I'm not there. I had um, a really amazing casting director in New York once said to me, I was telling him all about this, like, I'm going to do this, now to do that, can't do that, can't do that. And he was like, you know, Kush, everything in life costs something. Nothing's free. So, and usually it's from your own pocket, like from your own life. So if you want to take that amazing job, it's going to cost you a month of time you would have spent with your kid and a little bit of a slack relationship for the amazing job. If you take that amazing job, then that means you can have six months off after and you can then do spend a bit more time on that and a bit more time on that. It may mean that you can't take that job over there or do that interview or fly over there unless you'd like that to cost. And he was like, won't you make peace with whatever it is it's costing you? It's going to stop being so stressful. What you can't do is think I'm going to do this and then I want this and then I want that and then I want that. It's just, that's not a possibility. And you just kind of end up doing no job very well, I feel. You end up, um, you know, being filming and not giving your 100% because you're thinking about what you're failing at. Yeah. And the same, I do it exactly the same way around. When I come home from filming, phone goes down, work goes away, I close the office door and I am there and we are building dens and we are painting and we are baking and I am 110% in. And when I'm working, I have to, you know, say everybody, if it's an emergency, call me. If it's not an emergency, don't ask me where the biscuit is. Because that's the best way I know how to do it. That's my way. I'm sure some people would disagree with me. And I know there's a lot of people out there who say, this is crap. We can do everything. Women can do everything all the time. I just think that is one of the worst pressures that's ever been put on us, ever. I think it's, it's one of the most, most dangerous things I've ever heard as a working parent. And what I thought it was going to be versus how it transpired. Like, And I feel like, you know, when we were growing up, I was growing up in the 90s. I was in like an 80s, but I'm 40. Like we were told, we were very much coming off the back end of that 80s. Like we can do anything, work. And it's extent, so you know, maybe that has pushed me forward and I have worked my tail off and, you know, I did feel empowered that I could make things happen. But this whole, like, as a working parent, you can have it all. I, well, like you say, maybe some people have cracked that code, but I've tried really hard and I've tried lots of different approaches to it as well. I certainly haven't cracked it. Like, <laughs> you, you can't crack it, Gemma. Who's going to crack it? But you're a psychologist. You know, if you can't crack it, I'm not going to crack maybe, it. But maybe it's not supposed to be cracked. Like, maybe that's the thing. Like, we're trying, to, we're trying to package this thing. There is no package. Like, first of all, like, we're constantly evolving. Our children are constantly evolving. Their needs are constantly evolving. Our needs are constantly evolving. You know, if you're someone that is progressing in a career as well, that's constantly evolving. The world's changing, like what we can offer people and what people want. And especially if you're doing something creative, like I don't think, you know, I don't think, I genuinely don't think it was ever supposed to be cracked. I think we're supposed to wake up every day and think, what's the best thing I can do today? Where's the best, you know, I'm assuming that we've got structures in place, like help with childcare. And like, I've got, you know, my husband and I work together and there's, amazing flexibility in that but also that's complicated like roles and what I think my role as a mum should be versus what I can sometimes give and letting him do some of that 
saying him like it's my you know my job to give up it's not my so but you know that's complicated so like who gets up in the night um because yeah i up in night where there's a screaming baby or whatever but <laughs> i put myself in positions where i've been filming something the next day and i'm still getting up in night even though jake's like i will do it trust me to do this but i'm like it is my job i am yeah. the one you can't help yourself you can't help yourself it's it's so, and then it's so toxic. And then I'll be filming, or I'll be like, I've had times I've been crying on the way because, and I've had like a child peeled off me, and I'm crying, and they're crying, and I get there, and I'm not doing a great job with doing what I'm supposed to be doing for my day job. So I've done a shit job over there in my work stuff. I've yeah. done a shit job at home, like yeah. preparing everyone, and you know, just. But when I get my boundaries better at times, it works so much better. Like I, and but a lot of this, a lot of I find this stuff like a lot of the destruction has been my doing it's been my um view of myself and what I should be doing and I wish I could go back to my younger self before children and have this conversation about you think you can have it all you can kind of have it all but like you say there's a cost no one ever told me like that no one ever said to me there's going to be a cost yes you can do this and you could probably do all these things at the same time, but someday it's going to be more this and someday it's going to be more this. And some days you're going to feel yeah. like this and some days you're going to feel on top of it. Like, yeah, I just, yeah, yeah. it's such an event that it's not, you know, in, in no, in no area of your life is it sustainable to think that you can successfully manage everything all the time. And actually yeah. that's not real. It's not real. There's something kind of, you know, odd about that. And also you, I think, one of the biggest things that I've got back, I think, in the last couple of years is like a sense of self. They come that you know, you can be working so hard on every front, you know, and I'm not again, I'm not saying this isn't dads. I just find it to be more generally common with with working mums that you can be working your ass off on all fronts and you get to the point where you literally have no idea what you're interested in anymore. You're either at work, you're being a mum, or you're being a wife. Yeah. And you're servicing everybody in the most amazing way because you love them and you want to service them. You want to be a great, you know, performer at work, great performer at home and a great performer, you know, with your kids. But you can lose yourself within that. And then you've lost the sense of what got you there in the first place. I've had to make, I've made some conscious efforts this year and last year to always try to be reading one book that is not for research <laughs> which is mad coming from me who was such a huge reader I and got to the point in the last few years where I was working back to back pandemic really messed with schedule so it meant that some people's filming like mine ended up going back to back because finally people were back in blah blah and it meant that I would be reading stacks of books like you know papers from universities and research books really interesting books but nothing for me all for the mm. job or parenting Yes. Or, um, you know, you know, watching stuff that, that my husband mainly wants to watch so that we get to spend time together. But would it be what I would want to watch? Probably not. And and you know, thinking, what was the last activity that I've done that wasn't to rehearse something for work, that wasn't fencing or pole dancing or yachting or all these things I had to do for huge periods of time to get my body ready to do a job, or that wasn't to take my kids somewhere. Or to take my husband's just a hollow. It's like it's quite a scary thing because I was such a kind of full woman, you know. Like, and of course I had more time. This is all it is. It's just time. But um, so without putting too much pressure on it, I try to do, try to do small things that are just, you know, 
I'm gonna and I even feel selfish doing that <laughs> oh I mean that's just a whole new level I've been looking around my office and literally it's just books and books and books of work related stuff or like biographies or they're definitely fiction book in here though that I haven't read yet I do know that and I'm gonna dig it out I'm off next week so I'm gonna dig that out and that is what I'm reading that's where I'm going yeah so what's your like what's next for you concerning um, well, my husband's gonna listen to this and be like oh I want to hear this one what is next for her <laughs> it's um an interesting time because I feel like I'm entering a bit of a new phase I'm like you I'm like a couple of years away from being 40 and I don't I have no fear of aging whatsoever I love so I in fact feel like I get more um I like myself more the older I get if that makes sense Mm-hmm. So I kind of like growing older. Um, and now it's like, okay, I I got a bunch of things that I really thought I wanted career-wise. But now I've realized in this phase, I get a lot of joy out of putting projects together. I get a lot of joy out of bringing up other young performers and writers and also like um, getting behind the idea that this began as something that made me feel good. And now... Oh. Um, I where I am, I get a lot of feel good out of working out what the purpose of me being in the business is. That there's a bigger story here than Kush wanted to be a performer, so she became a performer. There's a bigger purpose here that's about what your legacy is. And I don't mean that by like a golden statue of me in Trouble Square, although I wouldn't say no, but that there are people following you, behind you, all kinds of actors all kinds of girls all kinds of people of color in all kinds of jobs and like what's your what's your effect upon the audiences you perform for in the within the choices that you make and what's your effect when you speak and how does that because like you know people listen to you and so how does that um leave its mark on the world and understanding how you do that is important because Otherwise, what's the point in being alive? It's not just so you can kind of do what you want to do. You know, like, it's like everybody can have a purpose. Everybody can have a a reason for being. And everybody can pass on their things they've learned to others. So then others could pass it on to people that they know. So that's a nice new phase. And that's why I'm really enjoying producing and except producing and being, you know, doing as much acting on screen as I am looking at production and looking at, the makeup of our technical departments in this country because we're shooting so much in this country and our industry is completely shooting into the sky off the map we don't have enough people in technical positions and we need more girls in technical positions so it's like looking at that and looking at how to really structure our industry so that we continue to be forefront drivers um within what we do which is really cool but for my that that all runs alongside continuing to like go oh I've learned this about myself that makes me a bit happier and I've learned this about myself like I'm trying to be a better friend to my amazing friends by being a little bit more honest with them about how I feel in myself whereas I used to think being a good friend was just kind of smiling listening to everybody and just being there for everybody but actually if you're not giving anything in a friendship then you're not really being a good friend either you're not sharing so I feel like we're in like an amazing phase of like with over 20 years of friendship and we're like getting even deeper with each other than we were before which is a really cool thing um but yeah I think um 
I, I definitely don't want to like, I don't want to shoot off into the next 20 years and be so busy that I don't ever get to get off my shiny gold train and get off of it and look at it and go, what an amazing shiny gold train. I don't want to get caught up in that because that can happen really easily when you're shooting back to back, six months back to back. Um, and that's why, I, I, yeah, that's why I love moving back here and being on the coast and being with my kid. I love being with my kid. So, um, yeah, I feel like I'm in a, finally in a place where I can maybe take the things I've learned and maybe put them into action. And then, and I'm sure I'm going to fuck up lots of times along the way. But I do feel like I've got my little cush back somewhere along the line. And I didn't feel like that 10 years ago, for sure. Wow, there's so much in there about, you know, taking what you've learned, putting it into practice now, what's really meaningful, like day to day, but also being present as well and enjoying, like you said, enjoying the moment. The moment, I don't know this is such a cliche to say, and it annoys me when people say it to me, but the moment is now. Like that, and I, I get caught up in that sometimes and I, you know, I'm working towards the next thing, the next thing, the next thing, but I get quite overwhelmed if I go through a long period of time, but I don't take stock of where I am or I don't take time off to just chill with the kids or yeah. just go on a dog walk yeah. or like, and I, and I say these things, like, I know that sounds really boring. And I, I, I think maybe the, the younger me might think that's actually quite boring, but, but, but a lot of it is the simple things that they are the simple things that bring me joy. And I, I know when I'm not, I know when I haven't got enough of that in my life because I know what it feels like in my body and I have to get yeah. stop for a moment and you've got to recalibrate a little yeah. bit yeah um a, a very and very interesting thing that Meryl Streep did once tell me not to name drop too much in this but I've always remembered it and I tell people all the time is she I did the Josephine show it transferred to New York and she came to opening night and she came backstage and um Everybody was around me kind of going, she's amazing. What's she going to do next? Where is she going to go next? she got to go to Hollywood. she got to do this. Blah, blah, blah. And my director was very good friends with her and they'd worked together loads of times. And the director said to her, now, what do you think? Where do, what do you think she should do next? Like, what should her next move be? And, and Meryl was talking about how everybody thinks and believes that always that the center of the universe is somewhere else that they're trying to get to. They always feel like, I'm on a journey to get to the center, to get to the center of the universe. And it's over there. And if I go over there, then it'll take me there. And one day I'll be closer to the center of the universe. And she said, if everybody understood that you are the center of your universe, then you would know that the only place you need to be right now is here. Nowhere else. There is nothing else in existence going on where you should be. It's right where you are. And she was like, the most successful people understand that because then what happens is everybody gets sucked into their universe. You know what I mean? And I thought it was kind of mind-blowing how she said it. And I try to remember it all the time because especially if you're somebody whose brain works in that forward motion way, that swimming, that kind of swan swimming stuff, it's quite hard sometimes to like stop paddling because you're like, whoa, what have I seen? Come on, see? Somebody might swim past me. You know, like I, what my, I can't kind of just stop paddling. It's not so much about stop paddling. It's just like to be aware that you, that you are where you should be. Like you and I are talking here right now mm -hmm. and that's exactly where we should be. 
and every anything else that's happening is not as important as this moment. Um, and I find that quite comforting because it makes me feel like it helps each moment to mean more than mm-hmm. feeling like you're so you should be somewhere else. Like you said, like feeling like if this is the last chapter of my book, it's a shit one. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> I'm not having this in my life. I know, whereas I wouldn't mind. I wouldn't mind this being my last chapter. I wouldn't mind this being my last chapter. <laughs> this, as you know, I have to say, this the experience of this podcast could totally be my last chapter. I would, like, I would be a happy person. This is what all I do. That's amazing. That is, am- that is amazing. I, I, like, I try to feel that about every job I do. And that's why I picked the job so carefully, because if it's the last thing that you do, make sure it counts. Make sure it's something that, your kid either like if our kids watched this in 50 years they get a really good sense of who we were mm-hmm. and they might quite like us they probably do a little bit of twats as well but I think they I think they mainly quite like us and think we had a good sense of humor and that we had some important things to say and that we moaned a bit but generally speaking yeah. I, you know what I mean yeah I totally feel like that that's such a lovely way to look at it and on that note I am gonna wrap this up so thank you so so much for your sharing today I think you know, this part of this podcast really is out not only like exploring some of your stories and what's gone on in your life, but also kind of sharing that with other people as well. And I know that's not always an easy thing to do. It's very personal. It's very, you know, really opened up as as lots of people do. And that's, you know, that is part of the process. But, and, but the point of it is that putting that out there, other people listening to that or seeing snippets of that, you know, that could help someone else that is thinking about to think about things in a different way or to challenge themselves or to know that we all experience kind of similar things but I'm 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 always so grateful because I know it's you know it's your story it's your personal life and you're opening up and and sharing lots of that people so I just want to say from the bottom of my heart thank you there were a few moments there I was quite emotional when you were talking um, oh yes I think Gemma you are you are very very easy to open up to and I think the work you're doing is so important because you make it feel like everybody can thrive in that way. And they can. This isn't special for actors or anyone else that's like a special. We're all special people and we're all going to have rough times. And I think you're right. It's. I know I have found it comforting to listen to things that have made me reframe my day in a different way. So it's an honour to Oh my goodness, what an impressive woman Kush is and what a journey she's been on and continues to be on. Grit, resilience, growth and determination have driven her forward for her entire life. And from an early age, applying herself to something she loved to do and was talented at, dancing, acting and entertaining, she was able to connect with the people around her, feel good about herself and create a life that she could only dream of as a child. I love how Kush describes her ability to visualise what her life could be like through the stories of great actors and actresses and their fairy tale lifestyles. Kush's aspirations in life, for many of us, may have seemed like an impossible dream, especially when faced with so many obstacles in life. But for Kush, she'd researched so much about the life stories of entertainers she admired, learning about the hardships they encountered on their journey to the top, but her dream just seemed entirely possible to her. 
That understanding and acceptance that every journey in life comes with obstacles would prepare her for many challenges and meant that she wasn't phased by them. Instead, seeing them as somewhat an inevitable part of her growth. But success is not a linear process either. And when life comes at you all guns blazing, it can push you to your lowest point. Thankfully, when this happened to Kush, she sought the help she needed. If you're in this position right now, please do consider seeking professional support and help. When Kush was facing a deeply challenging situation, she took a step back and made space in her life to put pen to paper and produce one of her most important pieces of work. And just look how far her life has come. Thank you, Kush, for sharing your story. I personally can't wait to see what you have in store for us next.